Today we have part nine, actually, of the, the, uh, our series in John. And our goal today is to hear Jesus' life-giving voice. That each of us would hear Jesus' life-giving voice. And we're going to have a brief recap. Then I'm going to look at the story of new life at the pool, which is the first 18 verses. Then I'm actually going to look at the last section, four kinds of evidence for Jesus. And then we're going to go to the middle part, which is the new teaching. I'll explain why we're doing it in that order in a minute. Just, uh, And then I'm going to uh, end by asking, how might you be like the man at the pool? What I'm actually going to do is to go straight into the story and just have a look at the the text. We've got a lot of text to go through this week, but I think you really have to go through all of it just to see how it all hangs together. Now, I'm not going to read all of it because part of watching the video is you get some of the story, and I'm going to concentrate on the middle section when we're going to read that through. But um, to go, the actual healing story, we actually have some... uh, some key words John's put us in, put in there for us, which helps us to, to kind of frame the story. He starts off with an after this, and then he says, now a man was lying there. Then he says, now that day was Sabbath, and then there's another after this. And so there's like markers in the story. And if we go to the first part, after this, there was a Jewish feast, and this like introduces it. There's a, there's a place where there's a pool called Bethesda, and a lot of sick people are there. You get the picture. Then we have the story of the man, disabled for 38 years. People speculate whether that's got some special symbolism. I don't think it has. I think it just means a long time. I mean, can you imagine being sick for 38 years, what that is like? Uh, has he any hope at this point? It says disabled. Literally, the word is dried up, which can apply to being paralyzed or various other things. But I think it's a very evocative word. If somebody is dried up, it's like a kind of death on them. Have you ever had a plant that you forgot to water? I'm afraid it's happened to me. And you suddenly spot it and it's dried up and it's it's dead. But it's kind of it's got that shriveled look. And so I, I want you to imagine this this emotion of being dried up and and it's like he's dried up inside as well because when Jesus says to him would you like to be healed like he's like in another place well you know I I can't nobody and he's not even tuning in that this might be an invitation here in fact like he's doesn't seem he's even paying attention to what's happening in Jerusalem where everybody's talking about Jesus and what he's doing he's not even recognized him so there's a kind of death over this man, a kind of dried upness about him. He's not really even engaged properly. And it mentions this about um, no one, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Uh, that's interesting item there. Um, it's uh, some some translations have got a little note about an angel stirring the pool and uh it's some Jewish superstition, which was at the time, that there would be an angel that stirred the pool and people would get healed if they went in there. There's nothing that we have that this is actually true. Um, you might ask, well, how come it's in some Bibles and not in others? Well, if we look at our 
New Testament, we get New Testament from Greek manuscripts, very, very old manuscripts dating back almost to the time of Jesus. And we have 5,000, more than 5,000 copies of the New Testament dating to ancient times. So we've got very high confidence of it. A few of them, later ones, have got this phrase in about the angels stirring the water. And it's thought that what happened was that, that this was, a, this was, um, True that this was the superstition the Jews had, but somebody had written it in the margin of one of the manuscripts. And then when it was copied the next time, the scribe copying it thought it was actually part of the scripture and copied it in. And that's how it got into some of the manuscripts. That's the theory of how that could have happened. But anyway, um, this was what was um, what was thought, and that's what they were trying to do. And that's what he thought that Jesus was talking about. It's actually interesting that superstition about healing has continued even into the present day. You know, there's places you can go to in the world today, shrines that you're supposed to be able to go there and get healed, you know, and there's some statue. If you look at that statue, you'll get healed. The superstition is about angels healing. You know, in the Bible, angels never heal people. People are healed in the name of Jesus by people healing them or Jesus healing them. Angels never heal people in the Bible. Yet there's this superstition about, you know, healing angels. And this is the sort of thing that was happening in those times. And so they had this idea and they thought that they could get healed from this water when something happened and it looked like it was moving. But Jesus says, no. Jesus says, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus speaks these words, and this man is healed. Notice Jesus did it without permission. He just did it. The guy never asked to be healed. He just healed him. And um, uh, he just brought life with a word. He spoke a word, and there was life. And we're going to see one of the themes growing th- going through this whole section is new creation. It's life spoken words and life comes new creation life from the dead and so it's kicked off here in this story and then we have this man picks up his mat starts walking and as you saw that the pharisees spot him and they're far more interested in the fact that he's carrying a mat than that he's healed you know if you saw him wouldn't you say like how did you get healed isn't this amazing no it's the mat they're interested in uh, it's the sabbath and you're not permitted to carry your mat. Well, are they right? Is this actually true? Well, arguably they are right, because in the time of the Exodus, somebody was, was carrying something, and they were, they were condemned for doing that by God. And so you could say technically they were right, but there's something else that's going on that we will see. Uh, Anyway, so this man says, well, I don't know who it was, uh, and they want to know who this man was who said, pick up your man and walk. They decide now the man's not the enemy, the person who told him, the person who healed him, not interested in the healing, but this guy has committed the offense of telling him to carry his mat. Anyway, so then Jesus finds him in the temple and says to him, look, you've become well, don't sin anymore, lest a worse thing come upon you. What's that about? Well, we're going to look at that in a minute. It looks like, you know, you got sick because you were bad, and if you carry on being bad, you'll get sick again. Is that what it's about? We'll see. Anyway, the man goes away, 
informs the Jewish leaders, and I don't think he's doing this to be nasty. He is expecting the Jewish leaders to be really excited by this. Wow, somebody's healed me, but of course this doesn't happen. So this is the story then um, of the what, what happens at the pool. This is the first part of our passage. And then we go on to, to verse, verses 16 through to 18, which are, which link everything together in the story. So, verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began persecuting him. So he told them, my father is working until now, and I too am working. So what is that, what's that about? Okay. The Sabbath was connected with creation. So in creation, God created the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. And so the Israelites were told to rest on the seventh day. But Jesus says, actually, God has started working again. God started working again. We're not on the seventh day anymore. God is moving once again, and I'm moving with him. What's happening here? Well, this is a theme that runs right through the way through the New Testament. So, for example, Jesus died on a Friday, and he was in the grave on the, uh, on the Sabbath. And what happened on the first day of the next week? The first day of the next week was a Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead, new creation. So the idea is you have a week of six days of the old creation and then uh, a day of rest, and then the new creation begins. And what Jesus is saying, God has started working again. Something new is happening. We're not in the Sabbath anymore. I'm going to explain in a minute about how this means that Jesus is allowed to break the Sabbath. We have to ask that question. Anyway, this didn't ingratiate them with him. It says, for this reason, the Jewish leaders were trying even harder to kill him. And we have two reasons. The first is he was breaking the Sabbath, but the second is he was calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. And that bridges us in to the this next part of the passage, which is all about Jesus making himself equal with God. And that's 19 through to 30. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And I now want to look at how the passage ends. And it ends with Jesus giving four kinds of evidence, four reasons why they should believe him. In the Old Testament law, as is true in in law today, law at any time, one witness by themselves is suspect. But if you have two witnesses or more than two agreeing, then that then there's a case. And Jesus says, if I testify about myself, if it's just my witness, my testimony is not true. In other words, you know, there's no basis for it legally. But actually, there's more test, there's more basis than that. And he goes through four things that are there as evidence. The first of them is um, John the Baptist. You have sent to John. He has testified to the truth. He was a lamp burning and shining, and you wanted to rejoice greatly for a short time in his light. And he's he's arguing that even a lot of the Pharisees went out to see John. Look, you listen to John. He witnessed to me. And I think if we try and bring this in today, we can see that um, 
we may see people who are Christians and they may, they may tell us about their experiences and they, we may see their lives. We, we may see something is happening in those people's lives. And that's an evidence of God. When I was growing up, I would say the most important reason why, even as a teenager, I never doubted God's existence was because I could see him in the lives of my mother and father. I could see he was so real in their lives. And I could see the way he answered their prayers. It was so real, I could never doubt the existence of God. And that's important. And you may have that in your life, that you see people, other people, you say, yeah, that I can't, I can't doubt that, that God is real in their lives. Um, the second thing he says, the second evidence, I have a testimony greater than, than that from John. The deeds the Father has assigned to me to complete, the deeds I'm doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, look at the miracles. And you can't doubt that, it, you know, this was very good evidence for Jesus because he's doing the signs and wonders which point to him. And uh, so uh, this, this, there might be something in your life which, which um, supports this. You may have seen God doing things in your life. You may have had answers to prayer. You may have seen God working in a way that can't be explained by just random chance. Uh, the next one is the father who sent me has in himself testified about me. You people have never hear, heard his voice nor seen him. Uh, and it's true, uh, they hadn't. But some had. I mean, um, John the Baptist heard Jesus' voice. And later on, they, they uh, after Pentecost, when the Spirit was given, they heard God's voice. And you may be aware of God's voice in your life. Even if you're not a Christian, you may sense God speaking to you in some way that is his presence. You may know something inside you says there is a God. He's there. And he exists. And so there's this voice of God which is speaking. And uh, the, the, uh, I would say that another way that God testifies directly is through the amazing creation that we have. And I know people try and explain it away with evolution. And I would say that um, you can explain some sort of simple mechanical things. You can, you could explain if that's what it was. But just the beauty of creation, the extraordinary wonder. Um, I remember hearing somebody say that when you're out, you know, you're in the mountains and you're just seeing the stars are above you. Everything is shouting at you that there is a God and he is real. And you actually have to deny that. You actually have to block that out because the extraordinary wonder of creation, like you see a bird, we see birds in our backyard and there's the beauty and the way they're formed and the extraordinary design of that bird is just speaking to you. And it's God's deeds, God's voice speaking through his creation. And then the last thing he says, the scriptures speak of me. Like, read the Bible. It's alive, and it speaks about me. And earlier, Anne read those verses from Isaiah that they would have had that speak of Jesus. So those are the four kinds of evidence that uh, we, we see in there regarding Jesus. And I'm just going to say that for us, evidence from other people, um, what God has done in your life, a direct sense of God speaking to you, and it may be through creation, it may be a sense of him speaking to you more directly, and the scriptures which have life and power. Four ways which in which we can get evidence for God.
Now I'd like to speak about the, uh, the healing at the pool. And this is the core of the passage that we're looking at. So I'm going to go back to uh, this section here. And um, this, this, really, this passage has really moved me as I've studied it because um, I'm just so, uh, I just feel like I've encountered Jesus as I've read this. And it's been very moving. And I'm hoping to just bring to you as I do it what it's like to encounter Jesus in this passage. And uh, I read, I've read lots of people writing about this passage. And um, a lot of people, in fact, just about all of the things I've read, they haven't really got past the point that Jesus is saying a lot of things and trying to actually see how does it all fit together? How does it fit into a message? Because it looks like he's just repeating himself and saying these things again and again. But actually, there's something I'm going to bring to you, which I think is in there, which is actually a coherent message that Jesus has with four points. It's a four-point sermon. Basically, one, two, three, four, and then he goes back to his four points. And I think when you see this, it'll be clear and it'll be exciting to grasp, to encounter Jesus through these words. So, point one, verse 19. Uh, Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn, solemn truth. The son can do nothing on his own initiative, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does... The son does likewise. So this is, I've summarized, this is the father's initiative and will. Now, this might seem a little strange because we believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity, you know, he's equal with God. But what Jesus is saying is that I have voluntarily put myself in submission to the father for the purposes of salvation. I've done that just voluntarily. Um, when I was when I was uh, growing up and and I was asking my parents about what is the Trinity, my mum came up with a, a an illustration, a story, and I've never heard anybody else give this, but it was the most helpful and still is the most helpful to me. Now, no story, no illustration about the Trinity is going to do justice to it, but this is the story. So imagine there's three businessmen, three partners in a firm, walking along a cliff top, and they're just enjoying the view. And then they notice that out in the sea, somebody is drowning. And they have a quick uh, discussion amongst themselves. One scrambles down the cliff, takes off his suit, dives into the water to swim out to save the person. One rushes off to get help, to get to get uh, some, some help for... for, for uh, like a powerboat or something. And the, the third one stays on the cliff top directing operations. Now, if you were to come on the scene, you might assume that the one on the cliff top was the boss. No, that was in charge. And the one swimming out in the water was like the least important. And well, you haven't, you don't even see the other one. The other one's gone, invisible. And so this is a little bit like the Trinity. You know, Jesus, they're, they're all partners. They're all equal partners. But Jesus has voluntarily, for the purposes of saving us, put himself in a position where he's taking direction from the Father. And we're going to see this in, uh, the, in the next chapter spelled out a lot more in a very powerful way, a very useful way. So I'm not going to spend any more time on it. But this is the key point that Jesus says uh, the father uh, has given his, delegated this to the son. 
The father's initiative and will. So that's his first point. The second point, the father loves the son, shows him everything he does, and shows him, and shows him greater deeds so that you will be amazed. Remember that. You will be amazed just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life. So first point, uh, God, the father's delegated everything to me. The second point is he's delegated something amazing. The ability to bring, to, to bring the dead to life. So power to create life from the dead. That's why I've summarized it. Third point. Furthermore, the father does not judge anyone, but is assigned all judgment to the son. So that all people who honor the son just as they honor, will honor the son just as they honor the father. Um, so it's authority to judge. So that's the third point. So if Jesus has been delegated everything from the father, he can raise from the dead and he can judge. That means there is an, an, an issue that comes up because um, he then can raise everybody from the dead and judge them. And in fact, this is where it comes. If those two things are true, this is the conclusion. He, the one who hears my message and believes, the one who sent me, has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the solemn truth, the time is coming and now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So what he's saying is, um, I've got the power to raise from the dead and them not to be condemned. If I'm the one who can raise from the dead and I'm the one who can judge, then I can raise from the, from the dead and not condemn them. And so this, if you like, is the climax of the message that um, we get in this passage. This is the, the climax. The one who hears my message and believes, the one who sent me, has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. So that's, if you like, the core idea of the passage. And he's built up to this by these facts. Um, but what he then goes back through the implications of those facts for us. So the first implication of this is uh, what he's just repeating here. He's assigned all authority to execute judgment to the son. So what does that mean? So the, the first, the, the, the first, actually it's the second point here, uh, the raise about raising from the dead. So if he's got assigned authority to execute judgment and he's going to raise from the dead, you put those two things together do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and will come out. The ones who've done what is good to the resurrection resulting in life and the ones who've done what is evil to the resurrection resulting in condemnation. Do you see how this logic flows through? Jesus has all authority. First of all, he's got authority to do this amazing thing. And he's repeated here, be amazed, the same expression is repeated, this amazing thing, raising the dead. Second, he's got authority to judge, believe in him, and you will not be condemned. But, he says, put these together, and you get resurrection and judgment. You get the two things coming together, those who are in the tombs, hearing his voice and coming out. And, of course, this is uh, also um, 
about Lazarus being he uh, raised from the dead, which happens later. And then he repeats the same line from the beginning, summarizes it. I can do nothing for my own initiative. Right at the top, it says this. Um, uh, the son can do nothing on his own initiative. So uh, just as I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. So uh, this is the, the four points that he goes through, takes them back again to the beginning, and it is the message of today. So what I want to ask then is, how then does this relate to what happened at the pool earlier on? How does this relate to that? And I'd like to just uh, tell, me, tell you what I think about that. We've done a brief recap. We've done the story of the pool. We've done the four kinds of evidence. And we're going now looking at this new teaching. Um, the new teaching. So it starts off the Father's initiative and will, then power to create life from the death, authority to judge, and receiving Jesus' words brings life. And then we have the implications going back through C, B, D, C, B, and A. How is this related to the man at the pool? Well, actually, you see, it neatly solves our problem that we had earlier on with what Jesus said at the end to the man. The Father's initiative and will uh, Jesus has the power to do this. He's, and he speaks the word and effectively creates life from the dead. He's not actually dead. The full miracle is going to come later on when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But this is like, he's kind of 38 years. There's not much life left in him. Jesus speaks the word and it's like new creation. He speaks the word and he has life. Um, and then he says to him, he says, don't, don't continue sinning um, lest something worse happen to you. And people have looked at that. They said, you know, Jesus is saying he's going to get sick again. No, this is about the thing that's worse that could happen to him would, being ju- would be being judged on the last day. That's what he's talking about. He says, he says, you need to repent from your sin because I'm going to judge you on the last day. And this isn't about, you know, people who aren't good enough getting sick. This is about the fact that I actually am the one who not only healed you now, but I'm the one who you're going to stand before on the last day. And so turn from your sin because something worse will happen to you then than far worse than what has ever happened to you now. So actually, the story of Jesus healing this man is a parable of what Jesus' teaching is. So... The whole thing fits together then. The whole thing fits with the story and with this Jesus' teaching. And as I read this, I, I was very moved, very touched by this, because this is my Jesus who's talking. This is my Lord who loves me so deeply. And just just hearing these words, he is at the greatest position of power. He is the mighty one that can raise the dead from the tombs. And he's my Jesus. And he's going to judge all at the end of time. But he's my Jesus and he loves me. And he cares about me. What have I got to fear? 
When my Jesus is above all authority and power, what do I have to fear? And like I was so excited, like I was almost like cheering, like here's Jesus, listen to him. He's so great. He's so amazing. And he's mine. And so I want to encourage you that this story has got two perspectives, whether you're in Jesus and united to him or whether you're not connected with him. If you're in him, this story is the most exciting thing you could hear because Jesus is saying, I can solve all problems. I can solve the problem of death. I can solve the problem of judgment and I'm going to. And, and, um, he's, uh, he's gracious. I mean, he, his, basically, if you go back to this passage, what does he say about, about people who believe in him? He says, the one, the one, uh, those who hear my message and believe have eternal life and will not be condemned. So he's not saying, you know, you've got to be good enough to not be condemned. He says, believe in me and you won't be condemned. If you trust in me, you won't be condemned. And he's saying, I will carry you through that flood. I will carry you through that judgment because I have the authority to. I've been given the authority to do it. And that just, that fills me with this, this, uh, sense of security that my Jesus, who loves me so much, he has the authority to take me through the worst trouble, the worst trial that could ever befall me, which would be this, the fire of judgment. He can take me through it. So I wanna, I want to just pull these things, these things together in closing by asking how this relates to us, how we can, can take this for ourselves. Uh, we've talked about this man being healed. We've talked about Jesus giving the reasons why we should believe him. We've talked about this teaching. How might we be like this man at the pool? You know, this guy at the pool had got his own idea of how to solve his problems, and it was not working out very well for him, was it? 38 years, and it had not worked out very well for him. And I want to suggest that even though you may be a Christian this morning, you may be feeling dried up. You may be feeling part of you is dried up, like this man. So this message here is very clear if you're not a Christian this morning. It's very clear because Jesus is offering new life. He says, receive my word and I will give you new life. And then you won't receive my condemnation, but you will receive my freedom. But I believe this is also for the Christian. And I think the challenge here is to receive this word of Jesus. You may be feeling dried up. Maybe the ways you're trying to to help the situations are not working. And I want to leave you with these verses. Um, I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the solemn truth. A time is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And 
what I think this is calling us to do is to receive Jesus' words that he has power in your situation, whatever you are struggling with, whatever is making you dried up and powerless right now, Jesus can speak those words and he can bring you freedom. He has the power. And it's calling us to come to him and to receive him and just to say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to just trust you. I'm just going to trust you. Bring my problems to you and trust you what you want me to do with them. Trust you with everything in my life. This is what this man did by the pool. He received Jesus' words and he had a new life. I said that I would talk one more thing about the Sabbath. Why was it that Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath? Jesus, the Sabbath, as I said, was, was all about resting at the old, end of the old creation. But the book of Hebrews tells us there's a new Sabbath was prophesied, would be coming. A new Sabbath, a new rest, like going to the promised land, resting. And that new rest was actually resting in Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's calling us into a Sabbath. And if you like, the whole of the Christian life is just a Sabbath day. Every day of the week is a Sabbath. Every day of the week is a resting in Jesus. And what Jesus is doing, when he's telling that man, he's healing that man, he's reaching forward into the future into the time after Pentecost when the church was born, the spirit came, the gospel was preached. And he's bringing some of that back into the present. And that man is receiving some of the new creation right now, the new creation, which is about rest in Jesus. And so that man is not under the old Sabbath law anymore. He's under the new law, the new law, which is not about what we're doing, but about resting in Jesus. So I want to challenge you, with the the Sabbath teaching in this passage. I want to challenge you with it. Are you entering into the rest of Jesus? Are you really entering into his rest? What that means is saying, I am going to trust you that no matter what the situation is, I'm just not going to get anxious about it. I'm going to give it to you because you are all powerful. You take those things together. Jesus' power and this image of rest and him calling us into rest, they just, they just impact me so greatly. I must admit, I don't, I need to live more in this. I need to live more in this rest. And I'm sure there are many of us here need to live more in this rest. But this is what I want to leave you here this morning. I'm going to call the, the worship team up now to lead us in worship. I, I want to, um, to leave you with this challenge to walk in this rest, to receive Jesus' words, to believe that he is the one that can turn the dried up parts of you into life, but just to rest in his power. That he is the one bringing new creation. He's the one bringing life. He's the one speaking life into us. Let's just pray now, shall we? Maybe we could all stand now as we're going to be um, bringing this to him. Jesus, we, we see you standing there telling a broken world that you can bring life. And Lord, we say to you, Lord, we need your life.
Lord, without you, we are withered. Without you, we're dried up. Lord, we pray that you will give us your rest, your new creation, your life. Lord, speak it into us. Lord, may we have the faith to trust you now. Whether we are Christians or whether we are not Christians, Lord, give us faith to walk in that trust that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. Amen.